Justin so said that, too. Yeah, that he's uh, finally closing up the gap on his lack of understanding on inflation. Well, that must be nice. I'll let you know when that occurs to me. I think the more you know about it, the more you realize that we really don't know a whole lot about it. So uh, this may be a lifelong journey, Justin. Once more unto the preach, dear friends. Else fill the wall up with our English dead. Good mating. Good, good, good mating. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another exciting episode of The Personal Wealth Coach starring Jake and Jeff McClure. Uh, we are today bringing you uh, news on the economy. Breaking, well, broken news? Broken news. Broken news on the economy. Right. Yes, um, we will try to tape it back together as much as possible to make it as uh, reasonably understanding. No, wait a minute, you, you can't really, you can't have a reasonable understanding of economics, can you? An unreasonable so. understanding of what's happening in the economic world. Yes, and we will bring to you uh, this uh, unreasonable and broken news in hopefully an entertaining and fun fashion. Um. But before we do that, we have to tell you other things called disclosures, because you shouldn't be closing things. You should be disclosing them. <clears throat> other people might call those openings. Mm. Not us. We call them right. disclosing. Would you please disclose the door? Certainly. <laughs> 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 All right. So first is that the personal wealth coach is not just this radio program or podcast, depending on what you're listening to at the moment. It's also the name of an SEC-registered investment advisory firm offering fiduciary investment advice to uh, our clients. Our clients, because the, the folks that are talking on here are part of that same organization. Now, we're not paid to do this, and we don't pay to do it. Well, we don't, the radio program. The, the program, yes, the, the fiduciary yeah. side. And we can't offer fiduciary advice on the air because of privacy issues and such. Um, so if we're not paid to do it and we're not paying to do it and we can't offer fiduciary, what in the world are we doing on here? We're hopefully going to educate you, possibly entertain you. Um, we do pay for advertisements on the, the station for this radio program, but so does the studio. We don't pay for the radio program, though. Correct. And uh, they don't pay us. Correct. So what, what it is, we have a partnership with them to advertise for the radio program. Um, and we've been doing this or some version of it since 1996. It, basically, what we're saying there is this is not paid commercial advertisement. So we, we have gotten clients from this radio program. But that's not where we get the majority of our clients. In fact, it's a pretty right. small percentage of our clients. So it's not like we don't get benefit from this. It's just not the reason why we do it. I think if we can give some education to the world and it benefits them, we're going to benefit too. There. You want to get the and next we one? Are an SEC, we are an SEC-registered investment advisory firm. However, that doesn't imply that the SEC approves or disapproves of anything we're doing. It's just there are regulators well, wait, and we're registered with them. It doesn't imply that they approve of anything that we do. 
but it may imply that they disapprove of something. Well, I'm sure they disapprove of a lot of things, but it doesn't right. imply that they approve or disapprove of any particular thing. Correct. Yes, that is correct. They have, just because we're registered with them doesn't mean that they like us any more than they like anyone else. They are similar in many ways to the IRS. Just because you pay them money does not mean they work for you. Right. And uh, we also, I want to disclose that the information we produce on this educational radio program that we give you is taken from sources we deem to be reliable. However, we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information, which is one of my favorite disclosures. It's kind of like my, our two favorite governmental agencies. Maybe there's three. Yeah, I, I think there's three governmental agencies, federal government, that we really like. The Bureau of Economic Analysis, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and the Census Bureau, because they're all bureaucrats, and we think it's really cool, and I would like to go visit them. I can just see whole floors of people sitting at desks in a dark room with green eye shades, very carefully writing things in ledgers. I think you've maybe watched um, uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid too many times. Oh. Those green yeah, eye shades were around for some reason. They're kind of hats with no tops, which right. makes people like us who are bald quite cold. Um, but... Uh, that's the, our definition of bureaucrats, and we're going to stick to it no matter what. Yeah. So there. Well, I suppose we should move on to the markets then. Um, Justin sent us a question way back on February 22nd, because uh, when, when we did our program uh, the 19th, he must have listened to on the following Monday, and we talked about the price of oil uh, the market generally pricing in to the price of oil, the conflict in Ukraine. It was in the, the low $90 a barrel. And uh, we talked about it pricing that in there. And his question was, I frequently read the markets are pricing in X rate hikes or the markets are pricing in any number of factors. My guess is that this means current future shares price reflect the probability of some variable occurring or vice versa. Please comment on how this actually plays out and how an analyst would even know if a variable is priced in. This is a great question. This is fantastic. Before the invasion of Ukraine, we're not talk we we didn't have sanctions going. We were not limiting the purchase of oil anywhere because Russia hadn't done its deed yet. So why was the price, instead of being at $60 a barrel, which it was prior to the maneuvers being done by the military of Russia and Belarus, why was it $90 a barrel? Nothing had happened yet. Well, when something is about to happen or people think that something is about to happen, whether that is, hey, we're all going to run out of toilet paper or something along those lines, those that are in charge of making purchases tend to want to stock up on that thing before a thing occurs. In the case of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the demand for oil went up. Not for use, but, but because people are saying, hey, if there's a war going, it's going to be hard to buy oil, especially from the places we like to buy oil. If you're in Europe, that's, that's Russia. So there was a lot more buying going on. But nothing had happened yet. That's what we mean by pricing it in. 
the anticipation of something happening causes people to go out and prepare for that thing to happen as if the thing already did. If Russia didn't invade Ukraine, if it hadn't, what would have happened to the price of oil? Well, it may have stayed up for a while until it moved its troops away from the border, and then people would have said, man, I spent too much oil on that purchase. I should have just... I spent too much dollars. Yeah, so, yeah so much, too much dollars on that oil. Uh, I should have waited and seen. But that's not how people work. When you find out there's, there may be a shortage in something next week, it tends to make you want to buy it today because there may be a shortage next week. That is, in effect, what we talk about, what any analyst talks about when they say it's being priced into the market. People anticipate it so much that they're willing to pay more for whatever uh, price reason. And that when It's not significantly accurate, by the way, when someone is pricing uh, something into the market. Like, we've already priced in a, a rate hike by the Fed into the stock market. Or we, we've priced uh, the, the invasion of Ukraine into the oil market prior to the invasion. It's not very accurate. I mean, it's more accurate than not preparing for it. Because $92 a barrel is not $115 a barrel. That's today's price. The, after the invasion, the prices are much higher than the... Let me use some air quotes. Everybody can see the air quotes on the, on the radio, on the podcast. Here's my air quotes. Uh, then priced in at $92 a barrel. Um, it's an anticipatory buy or sell. If, they, if you hear that um, some great new refineries coming online and they're going to be able to produce oil and gasoline at much quicker rates, people might begin to sell their stockpile today in anticipation of that, because the prices are going to be down after. Well, when people are selling, that tends to drop the price if a lot of people are bringing stuff to market that wasn't in the market before. So this is a great question. And when someone says it's priced in, that's not a locked in. This is the price it will be after the invasion. It's a, hey, the prices are up, and, and you don't expect to see them to jump 80% at the invasion if the invasion was a well-known incident beforehand. It still goes up, but not as much as you would think. Oh, it's just $60 a barrel until suddenly $115 a barrel. There. I've kicked that one enough times, I think. Well, I think a big issue that a lot of us, a lot of people don't understand is there's a, there's a huge difference between spot prices and futures prices. And why do we want, why are future prices, why do they exist? In essence, if you're going to buy, let's say, 100,000 barrels of oil because you want to refine it, you don't just say, hey, let me go to the store and buy 100,000 barrels of oil. They, they don't because, make shopping carts that big. It's right. really hard. And so what you've got to do is say somewhere there's oil and I want to buy it, but it won't be delivered until so many days from now. So what I'm going to do is pay for it now to get it delivered. And you do that on Amazon, believe it or not. Yeah, sure. It's it, You do you it at Dell. You something. do it anytime you're buying right. anything that is paid for before it's delivered. Right. It's buying for future delivery. That's, in essence, a futures contract. When I buy whatever, uh, if, if, if I buy a computer element, let's say I buy a router or a modem or socks from Amazon. A c computer socks? Amazon. They make socks Pardon? for computers now? 
they do. That's nice. Um, if I'm a computer. Yes, keeps their so feet let's warm. let's just say I, I buy a pair of socks from Amazon, and it's not going to be delivered for three days. I just bought a futures contract from Amazon for a certain amount of money for future delivery of socks. And I also paid a fee because I'm a prime member in advance for delivery. That goes on on a much larger scale in the commodities world. And it gets priced immediately into the value of whatever commodity we're buying. The same thing is true with stocks. Now, stocks stocks are based on future estimated value. In other words, if, if let's just say a given stock, the anticipation is it is going to have a certain amount of earnings next year. We look at that cash flow from those earnings. It's given a discount, and this is important. It's given a discount based on the interest rate because we're going to lose, if we buy it now, we're going to lose a certain amount of value that we could have gotten by putting it in a government treasury bond or something during that period of time. So the it's, it's, it's a future value calculation, and that's what the stock price generally tends to be. It, they fluctuate up and down. But basically... When things are bought on the global markets that you that we see records of, like the S&P 500 and the oil markets and so on, it's a price based on an estimated future value. And that gets priced in, by the way, to the oil, for example. So it, if the price, if the futures price is up, the, uh, the oil price goes up and the price of gasoline goes up, which means... If you think gasoline is high now, give it a little while and it'll be higher. Right. An- another way of looking at this, and this is a, I think, it, it, well, it's it's a valid point for the current era. Um, the price of wheat. Russia produces a lot of wheat. Ukraine produces a lot of wheat and corn, both of them. Russia is occasionally the largest wheat producer on the planet. And Ukraine is in the top 10 every year. So the Russia's in the top 10 and Ukraine are both in the, in the top 10 for wheat production. But, but wait, it's the middle of March. So why should that affect the price of wheat that was harvested last October? And the answer is because they're not planting right now, which means our expectation for wheat is... It's going to be more expensive later. Ukraine's not planting wheat. This is the time that you should be out planting wheat. They're not doing it. They're not probably going to do that. I just read a detailed analysis of that. The wheat is generally in the field in Ukraine. Here's the problem. The farmers can't get out to fertilize and put weed killer on the ground. Right. Which if they can't get out there during this, during the, as the spring advances, if they can't get out there to tend to their crops, it will cut their yield by about 30%. And if they can't harvest their crops because there's a a war going on, on. then their output is cut to nothing. So, so those are important factors. Why does it, why does it affect today? Your bread prices are going up today. This is wheat that was already harvested and already purchased. Why is wheat why why are we talking about it today? Well, because the wheat market it doesn't just go by harvest. That's what silos are. You have these big mm-hmm. silos full of wheat, and quite often when you buy wheat, when you buy flour 
this is a harvest from four or five years ago that's been held carefully in a silo and then sent out to a, a, a mill where it's ground up and made into flour. So why would bread prices today be affected by wheat that was that isn't even harvested yet when the bread was harvested four years ago? And the answer is because they all go into the same silos. And when you expect those silos to be lower in the future, it means what's in the silo is more valuable. There's another factor right now that's immediate and quite critical. A significant portion of the world's supply of wheat is shipped from the Gulf of Arzuz or Arzaz, A-Z-O. Yeah, and that anyway, whole area is completely closed off at the moment. And it's, it's closed off, which means that the ships that normally go in to pick up the wheat are sitting outside of that Gulf at anchor so they don't get shot. And the, the Russians have closed off the strait that leads into it. As a result, there is still the demand for wheat. People are still eating bread. So the demand is constant. And actually, the demand is, is ramping up because as the price goes up, people tend to buy more to hoard it, just like they did with toilet paper. So the demand is rising and the supply is falling. And the law of supply and demand exerts its ugly strength and right. says, okay, the price of wheat just went up. Wheat prices are up. Futures wheat contracts are up. Spot prices are up because it all goes into the same silos. Even if it's not yet planted, the expectation of not getting wheat from Ukraine and from Russia, which are both top 10 in the world wheat producers every year. Here's the actionable item that I was getting to, and I'm fairly certain we were off the air when I brought this up. For our listeners that are farmers, if you're still determining what seed you're going to plant this year, and I know it's a little late in the season for that, planting wheat might be a good idea. Um, just, just saying that we're going to have a major shortage and the prices are going to be high. Uh, so it, it may be a good idea to consider planting re- wheat. And there's a good reason that even if the war you, in Ukraine it is it, it, not over, but let's say Russia takes Ukraine and peace breaks out. Are we still going to have expensive commodities? Yes. And why are we going to have expensive commodities? Because companies around the globe, whether it's oil or wheat or anything else that comes out of Russia, are very, very hesitant to finance anything that Russia is doing right now. And in order to ship wheat overseas or oil overseas or Palladium or neon. Palladium, yeah. Palladium or neon or any of the other things that Russia exports. And by definition, once Russia takes Ukraine, presuming they do, that Ukraine exports, there has to be financing. Uh, And if nobody is willing to finance anything coming out of Russia or Ukraine, then, and which is what we're seeing right now, we're going to see the price go up. We've left the channels open for financing of oil exports and gas or exports from Russia because we don't want to crush Europeans' economy and we don't want the Europeans to freeze to death since Russia supplies about, what was it, 60% of the gas for yeah. parts of Europe. Right. And it's Absolutely. winter over there. But the fact is, in order to, it's the same old story. When you buy something and you use a credit card, again, buying from Amazon, you use a credit card. In essence, you're financing the purchase 
of whatever you bought from Amazon. So you're buying a futures contract and using financing to do it. But to use a very gross example, uh, Visa and MasterCard have shut down operations in Russia. For the majority so of, everybody of Russia. Else. Yeah, the majority of Russia is shut down from Visa and MasterCard. So the end result is nobody's willing to finance the purchase of oil or practically nobody's willing to finance the purchase of oil or wheat or aluminum or neon or the other things that are that Russia supplies a lot of to the world, which means it ain't moving. And if it ain't moving, there's a supply shortage. And when there's a supply shortage and demand hasn't changed, then prices go up. So the bottom line here is the war in Europe is going to cross is already causing and is going to cause more price inflation on commodities. Get used to it. Get ready for it. It has nothing to do with U.S. politics. Uh, United Kingdom announced today they are, they have and their and the European Union both announced record inflation. They announced that last week and higher inflation to come. And it has nothing to do with U.S. Congress allocating money. It is a reality that's happening across the world right now. So, so, and this kind of fits into Justin's next question. Justin well, we said that, too. Yeah, that he's finally closing up the gap on his lack of understanding on inflation. Well, that must be nice. I'll let you know when that occurs to me. I think the more you know about it, the more you realize that we really don't know a whole lot about it. So uh, this may be a lifelong journey, Justin. Um, but he thanks us for our, our contribution there. And he says, I'm not able to picture and look forward to your commentary since you're both great at using words to draw a mental picture of economic realities, uh, that everyone can understand. Whoa, man, put a, now we've got a bar to, to, that's a tough one. Um, what it means to make a soft landing on easing inflation. Uh, I do understand what you've explained on slowly choking away or chalking away demand by making money more expensive, but is it accurate to say this needs to be done in a delicate way? Is inflation really and truly the difference between the amount of dollars in circulation and the amount of things or services that those dollars can be traded for? Okay, so let me kind of take a step away. In a delicate way, easy answer is yes, it has to be done in a delicate way. Let's look at it this way. Inflation isn't really about the money supply. And I know I just said something that will cause everybody to go, what are you talking about? Um, if we have a huge amount of money, but interest rates are really high at the bank, why would you take that money out and do something with it if you're making money on it? So the money supply is less important than what is being paid on the money supply and even less important but than what amount of the money supply is in circulation, is actually buying things. That's called momentum, money in motion. You know, all, all of the um, physical terms applied to money have to do with, with liquidity, being wet, moving around, momentum, uh, the word currency comes from the liquid currents in oceans and rivers. Uh, the word liquid, as far as cash goes, it means that it's able to flow from one place to another. The money that's in motion, even if it's a small percentage of the overall supply of money, that stuff that's moving around, that's being used to buy stuff, 
the faster it moves and the more it moves, the more it adds to the prices going up. That's really the big thing. And if you think about it in terms of what happened at the beginning of the pandemic when everybody rushed out and bought toilet paper and toilet paper prices went way up and people were talking about gouging and people were auctioning off toilet paper on eBay and stuff like that. That It wasn't like you suddenly took 100% of your cash available and bought toilet paper. In fact, you probably only possibly doubled your toilet paper budget. It's still a pretty small percentage of what's happening. But by doing that, we changed the price of toilet paper rather drastically. So it's what is available to be used immediately that causes inflation. And we got to play some commercials. We actually need to spend some more time on that. Easing us off of this in a delicate way is vitally important because we haven't talked about disinflation or um, or that that can be much, much more dangerous. And we haven't even touched on deflation, which is the nasty boogeyman of the economic world. Deflation is about as bad a situation as you can get and if it's in a large scale. Much rather have large-scale inflation than deflation. What is it about disinflation or deflation that's so dangerous? Nobody likes inflation. Don't, don't get us wrong. We don't like inflation either. Really, we really don't like it. And if, if we run a 7% inflation rate for the whole year of 2022, that'll be a nice thing rather than a bad thing because it could be a lot worse. Uh, we don't expect it to last a lot beyond that, the war, the pandemic being in combination here. Why is that better than a negative 7%? Wouldn't that just mean that your money's more valuable? Well, yeah. Here's the issue. If you have a mortgage, it's a long contract. Talk about a futures contract. We were talking about that. You're borrowing money over a 30-year period. That's the most traditional mortgage. A 30-year period that you're obligated to make payments based on whatever interest rate you decided on. And, and that means that into the next 30 years, you're making the assumption that you're going to make enough money to make that payment. Deflation causes there to be less dollars around, which means that prices go down for food. That sounds great. Prices go down for cars and for houses. But if you're making a payment on a mortgage and the prices are going down for cars and for, and for houses and for everything else, and uh, your pay goes down, not because you're doing less work, but because the money's more valuable. Well, now you're making less money. Even though that money's more valuable, you're obligated to pay a 30-year loan back that was priced in at a different valuation on the dollar. You can see where this could be really bad for the middle and low class in the United States. Deflation is actually really good for banks. It's really good for people that have assets socked aside. But if you don't, inflation is a lot better. And the long-term innovation doesn't come from rich people. I know that's weird. And I know people go, wait a minute, but all the innovators are rich. But they weren't when they started innovating. <laughs> they get money after they've innovated, after they've performed some amazing service to the rest of us that we're willing to pay them for. 
whether that's satellite internet connection or an electric car or an internal combustion car or an internet connection. If somebody says, I'm a scrappy small business and I'm going to do this the best way possible, and they do, then we pay them for it and they get rich. Then they stop making innovations because one of the things about innovators is they tend to need to be hungry. They tend to need to have time on their hands. And when you're being paid a lot of money, you're not hungry anymore and your time gets all filled up. Jess? I'd like to move on to one of couple of John's questions. Okay. We've got two questions out there from John and we just got a new one from Roger. Yep. John, you sent a question uh, based on an article or an opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal by Jeb Hensarling, who used to be a representative from Texas and is no more, that debt and inflation threaten U.S. security. No. They don't. Not, they don't. not, not in the sense that it's talking about here. Let's, let's kind of... Yes, indeed. We have a $30 trillion debt. But, again, I want you to, to back up and not think about the debt-to-GDP ratio, which has been a big thing for a long time. The debt-to-GDP ratio would apply if we were using a commodity for, for um, money. But we're not using a commodity for money. The Federal Reserve manufactures money as we need it. The, the bottom line to it is, because the world reserve currency is the dollar, and the Federal Reserve can manufacture dollars, it becomes far more complex than the simplistic analysis that Mr. Uh, Hin Sarling put out there. We have a tremendous amount of flexibility. Can, can we just give a brief overview of what the article is? Because we're answering a question without really stating the question. We've said it vaguely. Okay. The premise of the article is that we've passed $30 trillion in debt at the U.S. government level. That's a lot of money. That's Anybody can say that's a lot of money. And that's scary. Um, it's not broken down as to what is, who is owed that debt or any of that, which is an important factor that's not being considered here. It's the largest debt in U.S. history in dollar terms. Again, this is the beginning paragraph. That's scary stuff. But the ratio to debt to gross domestic product is 119%, the largest it's ever been. This is the scary premise. Is this a threat to us? We were able to support a defense buildup that the Soviet Union couldn't match. That's how we won the, the, the Cold War, by borrowing a lot of money. And you can see during the Reagan era, a lot of debt was added to the government debt because we spent a lot of money on defense and basically ran the Soviet Union out of business. Then it goes on to compare Russia's economy and China's economy. Uh, Russia's economy debt-to-GDP ratio is 19%. China's 68%. Those are both really, really, really misleading. The reality, and we can talk about Russia or China. China's easier. The data is easier, easier to get a hold of. But Russia's economy has a debt-to-GDP debt ratio of 19%. That's assuming that the state-owned companies don't have any debt. That's just the bonds held by the Russian government or, or issued by the Russian government. But the reality is that all of those oligarchs that we hear about their assets being seized right now, 
are fiefdoms. Uh, Rus- the Russian economy is a feudal economy right now by, by almost any stretch. It's, it's a technologically feudal system. Rather than having a fiefdom like the old medieval Europe where you had a lord in charge of a fiefdom and that was granted to him by the king, the fiefdom is a technological thing rather than real estate. So each oligarch is in charge of, that one's in charge of a big bunch of steel, that one's in charge of a big bunch of oil, that one's in charge of the internet connection of the country. But it's state-owned. Even though the oligarchs make a lot of money on it, they're like the dukes and the earls and so on. If you don't count their debt, the debt to GDP in Russia looks great. If you consider them a private corporation rather than a state corporation, it looks great. The reality is their debt to GDP is a lot worse than ours. The same in China. State-run organizations or state-sponsored organizations, all the stuff about the real estate debt bubble in Russia, I mean in Russia, in China, it's, it's extremely important that you recognize that these are state-owned companies or state-supported companies. The debt in China is so much worse than it is in the United States right now. This is one of the issues that, that we can bring up. Is, us, is it okay for us to have a big bunch of debt? Well, for now, yeah. And if you look at our, uh, who we owe the debt to, $8 trillion of that 30 is owed back to the U.S. government from the U.S. government. Um, that's an IOU to itself. Uh, and you have something to add here. Yeah, you know, the, the the article, John, that you sent is fundamentally incorrect. Very fundamentally incorrect. It's why it's on the opinion paint. Former Representative Hinsarling. By representative, we mean to representative to U.S. Congress. Yeah, he has presented something that is that is very distorted. Let me give you an example. Since 1945... A dollar in 1945 would buy, what, $15.46 buys today because of inflation. So if we look at the debt in 1945, it's the equivalent of $41.58, roughly $42 trillion in today's dollars. So the fact that today's debt is $30 trillion In dollar terms. When, in in <laughs> right. dollar terms. If we... Plug in inflation, which is a reality. It was the equivalent of $46 trillion in 1945 and 46. And that was right before some pretty amazing boom years for our economy. And I don't think in the years that followed World War II, our U.S. security was threatened and we uh, were whipped up on that by everybody else because we had high debt. The second right. thing is, in terms of 119 of percent of gross domestic product it was 119 percent of gross domestic product in 1945 and right. 46 yeah so the article that you read either representative or jeb hart hensarling is either ignorant of such things which in which case i'm questioned that he should be and considered he was the chairman of i think the finance committee in the house at some point um either he's ignorant or he's producing something that is distorted and untrue. It, it, with it's just political. Um, and I think that's really what it is. It's, it's political because when we look at dollar terms, 30 trillion is more than what we had in 1945. We're not adjusting for inflation. Um, that, that's, it, it's really important to know we didn't have the debt of social security 
1945. If we had a social security system that was similar to ours now, that debt would have been a lot bigger. Actually, we did have a social security debt at that point. Well, it wasn't anywhere new. No, no. We had right. we had a massive surplus that was coming in every year that was taken care yeah, of. Yeah, but I mean, but we did have social security. You're right. right, right. Just the debt on it was being taken care of immediately. Um, but we are about out of time this hour. We'll be back next. If you'd like to talk to us off the air, you can email us, obviously, at jake or jeff at tpwc.com. Uh, that's Tango, Papa, Whiskey, Charlie, or The Personal Wealth Coach. Or you can go to our webpage. You can see our our newsletters and our uh, contact forms and so on there. We also have voicemail during the weekend and real live people during the week. Locally, that number is... 254-947-1111. Or you can reach that line toll-free at 1-800-914-7526. Uh, you can check out our podcast anywhere that has podcasts. We actually have uh, been getting some pretty good traffic through that. So check it out. See what we had to say before. And those are generally bite-sized. These things are two, these radio programs are two hours a piece. We break them down.